Hello there, welcome to Jubes and Curd, the podcast of my show on GB News. My name's Michelle Jubery, and you can catch me live every weekday evening from 6 till 7pm. But worry not, if you miss it, you can catch up here after every show. So let's do it. Welcome to Jubes and Curd. Keeping me company is my panel, Dominique Samuels, the writer and broadcaster. Also joining me, Joan Howie. Now, Joan, I have to say, I was asking you whether you came on, whether or not you was related to Kate Howie, but this is your first time joining me tonight. Good evening to you. Joan <laughs> is a Europe director at the Economist Intelligence Unit. Also keeping me company, Mark Roche, who's a columnist for the French weekly news magazine Le Pont. Now, you know the drill on this show. It's not just about us on this panel. No, it is not. It is about you at home as well. What's on your mind tonight? Get in touch with me on email, gbviews at gbnews.uk, or you can tweet me at Michelle Jubes or at gbnews. Don't forget, if you haven't already, you can subscribe to us on YouTube. We've got an app. We're on the radio, DAB Plus, and we are all over social media. So wherever you're watching or listening tonight, good evening. You are very welcome. Let's get into our top story, shall we? A 26-year-old Islamic State fanatic has been found guilty of murdering the Conservative MP Sir David Amis. Mr Amis was stabbed more than 20 times during a constituency surgery in Leon C, Essex, of course, in October 2021. Ali Habi Ali from Kentish Town, North London, has denied the charges and claimed that he targeted the MP over his vote for airstrikes on Syria. Well, let's go over, shall we, to our Home Affairs and Security Editor, Mark Wyatt, who was at the Old Bailey for his verdict this afternoon. Good evening, Mark. What's the latest? Good evening, Michelle. Well, Ali Harbi Ali had shown contempt, really, for this whole trial process from the very start and continued that today again as he refused to stand up in the dock as the jury returned their verdicts. And for the jury, well, this is the... Uh, for, as far as jury deliberations are concerned, uh, the, the quickest uh, jury deliberations I've ever uh, covered in many trials over the years. It took them just 18 minutes, having been sent out to return with their verdicts, guilty of preparing acts of terrorism and also guilty of the murder of Sir David Amos MP, who, as you mentioned there, was stabbed multiple times by this man, and an indication, really, that the jury just did not buy his defence, the claim that he was doing it in order to protect more Muslims from suffering because of the voting record of MPs like Sir David Amos, who had voted, he said, for the Iraq War in 2014 that led to the bombing of cities like Aleppo. Well, I've been looking back at the murder of a much-loved and respected local MP. Yes, we'd say I will wait. Outside this Baptist church in Leon C, the first police arrived to reports of a horrific stabbing. They say he's got a knife and he's just stabbed off. Lying critically wounded inside the church, local MP Sir David Amos. At the same time, we've got the taser unit one minute away, so we're going to go in and take the taser. Just moments earlier, frantic 999 calls for help. Please, please, quick now. The man is wielding a knife and he's threatening me. He's, Where he's killed. He's killed David Amos at Belfast Methodist Church. With the attackers still inside, the unarmed officers decide they have to push forward. Mate, drop the knife. Drop the knife now! Get it 
With the attackers subdued, medics were finally able to reach the stricken MP. But Sir David died at the scene, having suffered more than 20 stab injuries. As he was booked into custody, terrorist Ali Harbi Ali openly admitted his motivation. Domestic or hate-related Terror. Earlier, CCTV captured him leaving his London home, heading for Sir David's regular constituency surgery. In his rucksack, the 12-inch long murder weapon. When I first came in, Despite denying murder in court, in police interviews, the 26-year-old was more candid. Mr. Ali, is this a terrorist attack? I mean, I guess, yeah. I killed an MP and I've done it. Yeah. Okay. Ali showed the first signs of radicalisation in 2014 and was briefly referred to counter-extremism programmes. It's a reflection of the challenge we face in counter-terrorism today. So after 16 years as a counter-terrorism detective, the threat has diversified significantly. And if an individual is going to sit at home on their own, conducting research and not tell anyone else about their case, that's part of the challenge that we face. Um, but we do that with the family of those that have been radicalised, with, with the public, to take every attempt to disrupt and detect terrorism where we can. Ali had been planning an attack for at least five years before he finally struck, scoping out a number of potential victims, including Cabinet Minister Michael Gove, even writing down possible methods of attack, like targeting him during his morning jog. Fellow Cabinet Minister Dominic Raab and Labour leader Sir Keir Starmer were also in his sights. South End no should be the city of Colorado. In the end, he settled on Sir David Amos, an easy target, always accessible to his constituents. David was a very special person, and that is why there's been such a deep feeling of tragedy after his murder. Uh, this was no ordinary MP, this was someone who was completely dedicated to his job. Uh, and to lose someone like that, I think it's affected us all. It's certainly affected me very badly. That feeling of profound loss was felt most keenly in Sir David's constituency, where locals developed a deep respect for a politician who dedicated much of his time to campaigning for South End to gain city status. That mission completed posthumously. As he begins life behind bars, Sir David's killer has never shown any remorse for the murder of a much-loved and deeply respected Member of Parliament. Mark White, GB News. Well, if there is any consolation, it is likely that this 26-year-old will never see the light of day again because he is over 21 and because he's also been convicted of preparing acts of terrorism, so in other words, terrorism, uh, he will likely spend uh, life behind bars and be given a whole life tariff. Uh, that is normally the sentence that is passed for those who commit murder in the name of uh, terrorist ideology. As far as the two police officers who were... Uh, featured in that report are concerned those two brave officers who pushed forward to confront this knife attacker. They've received uh, rewards or awards, I should say, for the bravery that they showed that day because, of course, they were unarmed. The nearest backup, uh, armed backup, was still some minutes away, but they felt 
that they wanted, they had to push forward because they knew there was a critically ill man inside that church hall. At the end of the day, of course, there was nothing that they could do for Sir David, who had been stabbed more than 20 times and suffered fatal injuries. Mark White, thanks for that. Dominique Samuels, I have to say, I mean, watching Mark's uh, report there, it makes me go so goose pimply. I mean, you know, that poor, poor man and his family. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's so many things that come out off the back of this, so many questions that people have. How do we keep MPs safe? Uh, you know, what do we do about uh, Islamist terrorists uh, that really do want to create harm uh, to people? I mean, so much to unpick here, but what's your thoughts on some of this? Well, firstly, just watching that, it was so harrowing. It was mm. absolutely awful to watch. But, you know, I think, especially in this day and age, that MPs should be afforded a certain level of protection. And I think the general public wouldn't have a problem with that, knowing that there are, there are direct threats to, um, you know, our public officials out there. Because, as the report said, it wasn't just David Amos that was a target. You know, it was Michael Gove, it was Dominic yeah. Raab, it was Sakir Starmer. So this is clearly an issue, and it's not the first time this has happened, for example, with Joe Cox. So, you know, I don't think the public would necessarily have an issue with um, MPs being afforded some so sort of So what are you saying, then, that you think that MPs should have, what, security guards, 24-7 security guards? Well, I'm not sure about 24-7 security guards, but I think in particular reference to, say, for example, when they hold surgeries, that I think that there should be some level of vetting and some level um, of security there, because I don't really think in this day and age it makes sense for them to just be there, because, as we've seen, there are crazies out there who genuinely do think that they are right in actually murdering people in the name of some sort of warped political ideology. Yeah, and Jen, I mean, one of the kind of the saddest things in all of this is David Amos wanted to be as accessible as possible to the people that he was elected to serve, wasn't he? Yeah, I mean, I wrote down that phrase from the report there, always accessible. And, um, you know, in many ways he was a you know, he sets a very high bar, high standard, I think, for M MPs. And this is a very important aspect of our democracy in this country, that MPs are accessible to um, their constituents, uh, to members of the public. Um, and they do that through these open surgeries. And I think that we do need to talk about the safety of MPs because MPs have been attacked. And in the past five years, or in 2016 and 2021, we had two MPs murdered. So it's right that there should be um, a debate about that. But I, I think we also, we don't want to put up barriers between uh, the public and our, our MPs because we already live in um, a, a, a society where there's too much of a distance between mm. politicians and parties and members of the public, you know, uh, where a lot of the time um, politicians don't know what their, their constituents are thinking about and feeling about certain issues. So I think that's really important to try and retain that. And we can't keep everybody in a bubble and absolutely safe. And we should do what is sensible, I think, in terms of surgeries and having some kind of, of presence there. But we don't want to undo that really um, important um, aspect I think of, what, of democracy. I think what I found odd um, in light of, of the murder was that some of the conversation, well, a lot of the conversation, was wrongly actually turning to social media and it was made into a conversation about 
MPs not receiving nasty comments on social media. Yeah, absolutely. And whilst I understand that, you know, directly threats of violence on social media should never be condoned, but I was a bit uncomfortable because it seemed to be, this murder seemed to be used as an excuse by some people to call for more social media censorship, and yeah, I don't I necessarily think that's the issue. I think that's an interesting point. Mark, what's your uh, take on all this? Well, <clears throat> I'm a great admirer of the British system and I agree with Joan. You know, in France, no one knows who the MPs, it's proportional list, they don't hold surgery, and they don't have any give and take with their constituents. And I remember interviewing David Cameron, a constituency surgery day in, uh, Ox near Oxford, and it was extraordinary that you had the prime minister of the UK who has some other things to do than that really relating to his constituents. So we shouldn't go completely berserk about the threat, which you have in every country. I'm sure the security service can uh, do uh, their job. Um, surgery should not be transformed into like a, uh, a fortress. And I think we should keep the system that is going because it is a pillar of British democracy, which I admire. Yeah, I mean, just to recap, I mean, I know Joan News mentioning a couple of previous um, examples. Of course, we had uh, Joe Cox um, shot, stabbed to death, and uh, that was in 2016. Uh, Labour MP Stephen Timms. I mean, this is this is fairly similar in some ways because uh, he was actually stabbed twice um, in 2010. This was, and the reason that was quoted for that, the person that did it said that. That was in response to Tim's uh, vote for the Iraq war. Um, and Dominique, I do think that you raise an interesting point there, because when this happened, it was almost um, a desire to ignore what had actually happened mm -hmm. and instead divert the conversation around to let's not call each other names on Twitter. Yeah. And most uh, people were looking at this saying, well, what are you talking about? Because, yeah, OK, well, let's not insult each other on Twitter, of course, but mm -hmm. that hasn't got anything to do with this. Yeah, because we, we know what, what the problem was in each of, you know, the case with the Labour MP and also Sir David Amos. It was, um, you know, fundamental Islam. And I think this is quite an uncomfortable thing for people to talk about, admittedly, but I don't necessarily think that talking about, you know, radicalisation, I don't think it needs to be such a divisive conversation because I think the rise of terrorism, and I have an example here, um, there was a report from September 2021 and it found that the number of children arrested for terrorism offences is the highest since records began. And that includes both um, extreme right-wing ideology and obviously it includes um, religious extremism. And I think what this demonstrates is, is that our society is becoming increasingly fragmented and divided, and on both sides of the political aisle, nobody is actually willing to speak to the average person about how they feel about, say, issues such as immigration, about, you know, employment issues, about the cost of living. And that's why we are actually seeing the development of more extreme um, ideologies, both fundamentalist Islam and right-wing extremism. And unless we actually have that conversation, we won't get anywhere. And I mean, the vote to leave the EU, for example, was really a vote that said, hey, we're not really happy with the current system. We want to be able to control our borders. Politicians do something about it. And although we've had to fight to get the vote to, the, the, to leave the EU actually recognised, I don't think that 
enough of the issues that is causing such societal fragmentation has actually been addressed. Yeah, I think that um, you make a really important point there. Um, I think in a democracy, nothing should be off the agenda. You know, nothing should be off the table in terms of the issues that we talk about. Um, you know, so there's a clear link here. I think that the point about democracy, I mean, this was a heinous crime. Um, this man has showed complete contempt in court for uh, uh, British justice. Um, he's a self-declared Islamist uh, terrorist. Uh, and the, his aim is to destroy and undermine democracy. That is the aim of IS, uh, after all. Um, I think in our, it, it, we've become, I don't, all these contentious issues, they're no longer discussed. It's like, um, you know, there's some danger um, here in, in, in discussing these sorts of um, events. There seems to be an inclination to take these issues off the public um, agenda or the, the agenda of public but debate. But what do you think is driving that? Uh, well, I think that, um, you know, first of all, what it does show is a certain contempt for the electorate and for the average voter because, the you know, it, I think it suggests that people think we're not to be trusted, you know, that we can't handle difficult topics or contentious issues which about which people have strong views, whether it's immigration, whether it's mm. um, Islamist terrorism. But these are things that we need to actually are really important to discuss. And if we drive them out of the, the arena drive of public debate, extremes. people are not going to stop talking about it. So we need to have um, a public debate about it. And I think there was an attempt to obfuscate you know, what was going on at the time. Well, we had, we had uh, four years, five years with the Brexit debate about all these issues. And um, it was very nasty. And I suppose after Brexit, people were a bit afraid of uh, relaunching all these uh, dividing issues like immigration. But, yeah, but um, I think that's the issue is that it still doesn't seem to have been listened to like even with the um you know the migrant crisis across the channel again that issue is something that people have an issue with especially when it comes to people coming here you know a lot of the time illegally because a lot of the people that are coming here are coming here for economic reasons there's no way to identify them we don't know what these people are capable of and i'm afraid you know the fact is this might make people feel a bit uncomfortable but some of the people that are coming here claiming asylum do end up committing crimes and actually also committing acts of terror in a lot of European countries. And that's really a conversation that we should be able to have, but it seems that we're not. And unless, like I said, we are able to have that conversation, actually get honest about it, people are, are going to verge on to the extremes, whether that be fundamental Islam, not feeling like you belong in Europe, and whether that be being on the right of the spectrum and feeling like you know, your homeland is basically being invaded. Anyway, let's speak about France, shall we? Because in the first round of the French elections yesterday, polling results show that the far-right candidate, Marine Le Pen, is just four points behind President Emmanuel Macron. Both, of course, have gone through to the second round voting, which will take place on the 24th of April. This time, they'll both need votes from people who perhaps naturally wouldn't vote for either of them. So what do we think to this? Uh, could Marine Le Pen cause a bit of a shock in France and win the French election? Um, Mark, I mean, there's so much to unpick here. Uh, first things first, I want to ask you, Marine Le Pen, I mean, she's often described, I've just done it then myself, as far extreme far right. Is that accurate? Well, she has taken advantage by the fact that there was a real far right 
candidate called Eric Zemmour, mm -hmm. who was completely anti-Islam, anti-immigration, that was his only. And she very intelligently went to more traditional right by focusing on a thing Macron completely forgot, which is the cost of living, which is a big mm. issue in the UK, and enormous issue in France, as we have seen with the Gilets Jaunes. And she focused on that while he was busy with Ukraine and the higher things of state. And he has never been very good at uh, feeling. He's a bit arrogant. He's a bit aloof. He called himself the Jupiter presidency. You know, he's there. And she has sort of presented herself as center-right. No, the problem is that is she really changing the leopard skin, or simply is it the same person who took an opportunity there? I think <clears throat> she will be beaten because Macron has done much better than expected, near 28%. She's still 4%, but she has a bigger, he has a bigger reservoir of vote on the left who will either abstain or will decide they really can't vote for her and they will vote by keeping their nose closed um, uh, for Macron. So I expect him to win, but very tight and have a difficult second mandate. Mm. Shall I just put the uh, poll results up, by the way, on the screen as we're talking, just in case uh, you haven't seen them? Uh, just a quick reminder as to how they currently looked. Have I got that graphic? Yes, there you go. Um, I think what we'll start with doing uh, is looking at 2017, because that is a poll. What people often do will reference back to uh, Macron and, and Le Pen and how it looked. And actually, if we go back to 2017, Macron got 24%. This time he got uh, just shy of 28. Uh, Le Pen got 21%, this time just over 23. Um, and I think what's interesting is, of course, when you go to the second round, I mean, Le Pen got absolutely smacked. She got 33.9% of the second round. Macron got 66% there. So it'll be really interesting to see what happens at that second round. Um, Joan, your thoughts on all this? Yeah, um, well, I think it will be very difficult um, for Le Pen to win um, because you just have to do the maths. So if you look at the, the actual number of votes, so in the first round, not just the percentages, um, so Macron got 9.8 million, uh, Le Pen got 8.1 million. So he's already 1.7 million ahead. And then he can anticipate that he will take the votes from the kind of old, obliterated now traditional parties, the socialists and the republicans. Yeah, who so got that's, next to nothing back yeah, And the greens, yeah. But altogether, that's still 4 million votes that are probably going to go to him. And then there's the question of um, the third place candidate who did very well, even better than expected, uh, Jean-Luc Mélenchon, who um, now 56% of his voters have said that they will abstain. Mm, um, that leaves that. about 3.5 million. And, and tellingly, he didn't ask his voters just to vote to for Macron. Macron. No, yeah, he, just, he just said, don't vote for, for Le Pen. Now, um, you know, whether his many of his voters can bring themselves <laughs> to vote for Macron, who they revile, really, and do not like at all, is one question. But say their votes got split, you know, 2 million for Macron, 1.5 for, for Le Pen. Um, you know, it's very, he, it becomes very hard to beat. 
Macron. So she, to win, what would it take for her to win? It would take that she would actually have to get a very significant percentage of Mélenchon's vote and quite a lot of the fringe candidates' votes as well, which is another few million. But they're generally on the kind of other side of the political spectrum, on the left. I mean, I don't think left-right means that much anymore in France. It's the France of the forgotten against the... Yeah. the, the, the which is what Le Pen calls them, um, and, and the others. And um, this is what... Um, you know, technocratic politics and centrism has created in France. But just uh, very quickly on, on a point, the big thing will be the debate when they are face yeah, to face exactly. because that's a breaking in, yes. in every presidential election, and especially the last one when she did very badly. And the debate will be around the economy, mm -hmm. which is a weakest mm -hmm. point for uh, Le Pen, and which is a strong point, although he didn't do very well by forgetting the cost of living, the strong point of Macron, because he's a former uh, banker and he's also a former minister of economy. So that's why I But he's I also think been he president would... for half a decade, so if he was going to do anything to help people with cost of living, etc., some people might suggest that he would have put, sown some of those seeds in the prior years whilst he's, whilst he's held that office. Yeah, and I think that in terms of the race, Whilst I'm not so sure that um, Le Pen will be able to win, I don't think it's fair to say that, you know, she doesn't have a chance because she does, I think, have a chance. I think some polls put her at 49% to Macron's um, 51%. In the second round. In the second yeah. round. And for um, Mélenchon's voters, although, yes, a lot of them are going to be abstaining, there was one poll that showed that 19% of them um, will be actually lending their vote to Le Pen. Uh, for Valérie Pécresse, who was part of the Republicans, although she said that she would be voting for uh, Macron, another member of a party that was quite senior actually came out and said that he would be voting for Le Pen because the Republicans performed the worst that they had ever mm. performed. And I think what's interesting about, like you said, Eric Zemmour, is that it looks like the Zamor actually hasn't hoovered up any of um, Marine Le Pen's votes. It seems that the votes have actually transferred from the Republicans uh, to Zamor. And I think most of that, in my personal opinion, is because a lot of people on the right or those that see themselves as more traditional conservatives, they're far more skeptical of sort of aligning themselves with the Le Pen brand and the attitude of her father, who was an open racist and Holocaust denier. And for them, you know, it's still very much the, the front national. But Eric Zemmour, he actually did come out in support of Le Pen and he got about 7.2%. Um, so I think she is in with a chance, but like you said, I think it does depend on the second debate. Everyone sort of agrees that she did terribly. But I think her policies, focusing on the cost of living, wanting to cut taxes, uh, remove income tax for under 30s, um, a lot of those policies are quite popular, whereas Macron has been quite unpopular, especially yes, with older voters. And it's very rare that a French president going into a second mandate, as you said, is so unpopular mm. as a person. There is something in Macron that many people dislike. His aloofness, his technocratic background, and his that, lack of report. Case for all leaders, you're going to have people that really like you and people that really are not, not Marine happy with Le Pen. You. Marine Le Pen is a very uh, outward looking. She goes to the people, mm. cost of living. Not the case of Jean-Luc Mélenchon, the left-wing person with a tribune and speak like the Gaulle and all that. Macron, there is something the French don't like him. Mm. He will be re-elected, I think. But... There's, yeah, there's no good outcomes, really, are, are, are there, in a way, because what we're going to end up with, even if Macron gets re-elected, 
We've got a France that is the most divided country yeah. mm. in the EU. It's um, uh, you know, a very disaffected population. And uh, more than 50% of the country feels disenfranchised and will feel disenfranchised if Macron is elected again. So I think, and we've got this implosion of political parties, traditional parties. So I think actually we could have a lot of social unrest Mm. in France. And they're very different in terms of their policies, by the way. So just in case people are not familiar, so Macron, for example, wants to raise uh, the retirement age from 62 to mm -hmm. 65. Uh, in complete contrast to that, Le Pen wants to lower it. So she wants the retirement age to be at 60 if you've worked for 40 years. Um, you know, Le Pen, as Dominique was just saying, no income tax uh, for under 30s. She wants to have a referendum on stricter rules for immigration. Uh, Macron, for example, uh, he's saying about he wants more police officers, uh, more health service staff, etc. Uh, one of the things that I found quite interesting about Le Pen, uh, Mark, was around Brexit and her kind of views on that. It used to be very, very strong, didn't it? And it seems to have altered slightly. Well, she used to be a Frexit supporter, mm. as uh, the Brexit uh, French ways is known. And she realised that despite the shortcoming of the EU, uh, France, one of the founding members, um, is in general attached to stay in the EU, although a reform EU, although in 2005 they vote against the Maastricht Treaty and it was not uh, uh, recognized. But she is now saying, um, we'll accept the EU, but we will uh, veto laws, European laws, that go against the interests of the French workers. And so that will create a lot of problem with Brussels, like it is at the moment with uh, Poland and Hungary on, on other things. And she, um, I think for the British, there's also a problem because she will close the agreement on Calais to stop the illegal migration. She will stop the um, defense agreement, bilateral agreement between the UK and, and France. So from the British point of view, they have an interest, although Macron has been an unpleasant partner, that Macron stays in power. Mm. Let me know your thoughts. Um, lots of you getting in contact, by the way, about that initial topic about MPs and security and what should we do there. Uh, a mixture of views, actually, around whether or not MPs should have security. Um, Lee has been in touch saying, well, they don't necessarily need security. Lee says, why wouldn't they just have a screen uh, when they're out doing their surgeries, etc. Like he says, bank clerks have uh, a screen. Uh, I've got to say, some of the McDonald's that I visit, oh, uh, they have a screen. But is Why? that what you want? Uh, is that what you want? You want your MPs behind kind of plastic screening? I don't know. No. Uh, is that not what you want? No, it's a bit clinical, like the plastic screening thing, especially like. My experience of it just through the COVID theatre is that, you know, and you, you find it difficult to actually hear people as well. So, oh, yeah, I, know. I don't know. Yeah. Um, if I was an MP, um, I probably would feel a bit safer behind a plastic screen, uh, but I'd feel an awful lot safer as well if there was a big belly security guard uh, yeah. stood next to me as well, I've got to be honest. But um, let me know your thoughts on those last three topics, gbviews at gbnews.uk. Nigel said, Michelle, I've just missed the start of your programme. i only just tuned in. What have I missed? Nigel, worry not. Uh, you can catch up on the app or YouTube. Um, you've missed us debating uh, about how to keep MPs safe and, of course, what's going on in France with Le Pen and Macron.
um, but you can catch up, so all is not lost. Right, let's talk Boris Johnson, shall we? He made a surprise visit to Kiev this weekend uh, and met President Zelensky. Uh, after the visit, Zelensky praised Boris Johnson and said that the leadership shown by the UK would, I quote, go down in history. Uh, for his part, Boris Johnson has pledged more weapons to help Ukraine. Um, yeah, I mean, where do we go with this? The, U the Ukrainian Defence Ministry has tweeted the following. We welcome Boris Johnson uh, in Kiev, the first G7 leader to arrive in Ukraine since the beginning of the large-scale war. We're strengthening our union of democracies. Be brave like Boris and be brave like Ukraine. Um, Joan, I mean, obviously, uh, Ursula von der Leyen was there just before Boris. So this is not the first kind of European leader to, to visit Kiev. But many uh, were very proud, I guess, to see Boris Johnson wandering around Ukraine. Your thoughts? Yeah, I must say, I didn't uh, notice Ursula von der Leyen's visit at all. Um, but I did notice Boris Johnson's visit and obviously everybody else did too. I think this was a, a, a good news story. I think this was a very positive thing. I mean, obviously it was uh, very symbolic. I mean, many of his detractors said this, oh, this is just a PR operation and, and so on. Well, yeah, to some degree it is, but that is the point of it. It was uh, Boris Johnson representing the UK and the UK government saying, we stand with Ukraine and I've come here, you know, to make that commitment very clear. So um, I, I, I think that was um, positive. But obviously, for some people, the UK prime minister can do no right <laughs> at all, uh, whatever he does. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, we did hear it from the horse's mouth from um, uh, President Zelensky himself, um, uh, that they saw this as a very positive move. And they also considered that the UK's role in this crisis has been a very important one. And um, the UK has been quite decisive. It's been more committed than many other European countries. Um, it obviously aligned itself with the, U the US before the invasion occurred and, um, um, and also was training um, the Ukrainian military for some time um, uh, before that and has supplied weapons and provided aid and so on. I think it shows actually the benefits of having an independent foreign policy, that you can um, have this, be much more agile, that you can be more decisive, that you can, you know, take the decisions. And I think he recognised probably at a very early stage that the principle for which the Ukrainians are fighting for uh, sovereignty uh, and self-determination uh, was an absolutely critical one. And that's why we should stand um, with Ukraine. And obviously, those are principles that have been much denigrated um, in recent years, not least in this country. But in this fight, we see just how important um, sovereignty really is. Dominique? Yeah, I think objectively speaking, um, Boris Johnson has really been quite the leader in regards to Ukraine. What I find interesting, though, is that, you know, the country, I think, that's mostly responsible for this conflict, the United States, really hasn't played that much. Um, of a pivotal role in this conflict. Personally, for me, I think that Joe Biden, throughout this whole thing, um, even, you know, the, the years leading up to this invasion, I think that America has loaded the gun, and now Joe Biden is loading the gun and letting other powers fire it. Why do you think America's responsible for this? Because in regards to NATO expansion, um, you know, America is the principal feature of this. The reason why... Um, 
Russia has said it is invading Ukraine is because, number one, it wants NATO to make clear um, that Ukraine isn't going to join. And America, at various points, has kept that door open rather on purpose, I think. And Joe Biden in the 1990s, even verbatim out of his own mouth, said that one of the one, the one reason why conflict and war would begin again in Europe is if um, NATO continued um, is ex its expansion in Eastern Europe. And the president of the United States said that. So I think he should be paying, playing far more of a pivotal role than he is right now. Mark? Well, well done to Boris Johnson, because the British government was quick to react. They muddled a bit the sanction, because they, want, they didn't want to make the other rich people uh, from the Middle East or from uh, Asia, afraid about their money. So that was not as well done, but in terms of the armaments, it was uh, very quick, it was very uh, agile. Brexit helps, of course, because the UK doesn't have to wait 27 opinions. Mm. But I think for me, the real problem of Ukraine is Germany, because unless Germany after the disastrous, we know it now, policy of Merkel on energy um, and completely aligning itself with Russia, we'll have to take the hard decision, which is to diminish the imports of gas so let me ask you from the, Russia. So let me ask you um, on this, because this comes up all the time. What do you think the impacts would be on Germany of basically just cutting off yeah. that dependency on, the German on people, Russian poor German people. Uh, well, energy. You know, if you see how Germany imposed on Greece and all during the Euro crisis, a terrible uh, policy of, of diminishing uh, expense and all that sort of thing, they can suffer a bit by no, but I'm helping you, the Ukrainians. You, I'm asking you, what do you think, because I mean, I think they get like 40% of their energy, no. For a country, basically, to suddenly cease getting 40% of its energy supply, I'm asking you, what do you think the impact well, on the citizens can, will they be? They can do it progressively. They don't have right away to stop 40%. I mean, that's what they're saying they, they're, they're more willing to do. They're more willing to progressively... But they haven't done anything. They haven't done armaments. But they haven't done sanctions, really. And they haven't done uh, diminishing... Um, and, you know, in Europe, it's Germany that matters. But at the same the time, Europe. at the same time... Why did the USA approve Nord Stream 2, which well, would stand to benefit Germany and Russia? Why did Joe Biden, much, much um, you know, to the odds of members of his own party and also the Republican Party, Joe Biden approved Nord, Nord Stream 2, knowing that it would basically be handing power to Russia, and then America itself has, has basically cut off its ability Everyone to produce its own energy independently. Everyone accepts And he's loaded the gun and then just been like, oh, right, it's Germany's problem, it's Europe's problem. That's, why aren't well, more people they, calling out Joe Biden? That's my contention. I mean, I, I think on, on, on this, um, I, I think you do make an important point. I and mean, the, the first point I would make is that Russia and Russia alone is, is responsible for this war. Russia made the decision to invade now, I'm very familiar with the kind of long list of um, uh, complaints from, from Russia about the West and NATO and the US not taking its security concerns seriously, which is absolutely true. I've followed it in great detail over, over many years. Um, but even um, you can't take away the agency from Russia and Vladimir Putin, even if you feel that your back's against the wall. Um, this is an indefensible war 
it's an abomination. Mm. And I think um, it, it's pretty clear um, who is on the right side here. Now, having said that, we do have, have to ask the question how we got here. Mm. And I think, you know, when historians look back at this, um, they will have to conclude that this is a massive failure of diplomacy massive. over a very long period of time. And things could have been done um, in, in a different way. And you have to ask the question, you know, was this a deliberate, you know, policy um, to push uh, a Russia um, to actually uh, encourage Ukraine in its aspirations to join NATO and then actually to leave it to fight pretty much alone regardless of, 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 yeah, because never, of what the West is now, the... is now doing. So, um, yeah, it, the, there is, it, it, you know, things are never as black and white. As... NATO never said they want Ukraine in. It was especially with the Germans. There, they did so say that the, the door would be open. And the when, door will be open. Yeah, but, but no when... But when like with the EU. Yeah, but when, know, Joe Biden, EU. when Joe Biden met Putin um, last year in 2021, he also refused to make clear that Ukraine wouldn't be joining NATO. Why? But I don't, I don't get it. Ian's just written in and said, well, hang on a second. Um, NATO has expanded because countries want to join. And in a democracy, that's up to them. If they want to join and the organisation wants to have them, what's it got to do with anyone else? Yeah, but else? we don't want... No country want to fight Russia, isn't it? And as we sympathise with Ukraine and the horror about what's going, no one has said we will fight the Russians. It's time to look and at if, reality if a bit. if Ukraine yeah. is part of NATO, NATO has to fight Ukraine, but, but Mark, for Ukraine if the Russian attacks. So. But Mark, you say that nobody's saying we want to fight Russia. Of course nobody's saying that, and no same-minded individual would even think that. But where I worry a little bit um, is Alex, for example, has emailed in saying, yes, we're leading the way and all the rest of it, and yes, people can say it's good, but his concern is, are we opening ourselves up essentially to the wrath of Putin? Many people might have seen that video um, where a UK missile has apparently shot down a Russian uh, drone, and the video is kind of them saying, thank you, Britain, kind of thing. Yes. And I think there's some people out there that are worried, and, and uh, you know, are we tiptoeing our way into... Uh, yeah, potential World War Three. I think that's the worry of many people. Uh, you guys have been getting in touch, by the way, on that first topic we did about how to keep uh, MPs safe. George says, well, yeah, uh, MPs can have security, but they must fund it themselves. Why should an MP have to fund um, being safe in their own job? I don't know what job you do, but don't you have a right to be safe whilst you're at work? Uh, Martin has said MPs should wear stab vests. Oh. Um, really? Well, do you, if you're an MP, do you think that you should have to wear a, a stab vest? That's I mean, we have put to remember. a lot of people off. <laughs> yeah, we have to remember that this is, you're going to work. I don't know what jobs you all do, but if you go to work, should you have to wear a stab vest when you get there? Anyway, uh, let's cut to the chase on our next story for time reasons, shall we? Uh, almost half of teachers, apparently, in England plan to leave the profession within the next five years, long story short. Uh, they're blaming things like unmanageable workloads, stress and lack of levels of trust in them by the public. Dominique, your thoughts on this? I think, principally, that teachers could get a better deal. I think that, say, for example, um, I think the average teacher earns minimum about 25 grand um, per annum. I think maybe you could help in some way by making some more of that income tax-free. 
give teachers... What's 25 grand? Um, the minimum starting salary for the... Oh, right, yeah, but their average salary is above UK average salary, from what yeah. I understand. So average... But then you've also got to factor in um, taxation. So, say, if a teacher's on, say, a 25 grand salary, mm. their take-home pay would be about about £20,000. Yeah, but that's the, that's the law of the land. Everyone gets taxed on that. Yeah, but if you factor in sort of the Unless cost... you're Rishi Sunak's wife. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but anyway. I mean, like, if you factor in the cost of living, and to be honest, <clears throat> I kind of think this across the board, I think we do need um, a bit more relief in terms of taxes, especially with regards to how fast prices, prices are rising. But I think if there were a few more incentives for teachers, I think you would be attracting more of the right people into the profession. Because I think what we have right now is we have people <coughs> that want to project their own ideology um, onto children. Mm. For example, throughout COVID, it was the unions that were saying, you know, we don't want to open schools, we want to teach um, remotely, we want to do this, that, this, that. And I feel as though, specifically the teaching unions, they've come, become very ideolo ideological and it seems to veer more towards the left. And I think that, you know, if we give, gave more incentives, I think we'd be attracting more of the right people. Uh, Joan, would you be a teacher? Mm -hmm. um, well, no, not now. Um, I wouldn't. I, I don't want to really work in the public sector. Um, but um, uh, I, I don't know what to say about this. My kids all finished school now quite a long time ago. Um, I mean, I can understand that um, teaching might seem like a bit of a joyless profession at times now because um, of the way the national curriculum is um, and um, I think it's moved quite a long way from the kind of idea of, te of teachers being specialists in particular subjects and teaching their subjects and really enjoying doing that um, and yeah I think a lot of it has got quite ideological. It's turned into social workers as well, um, yeah, my opinion. I don't think that's, <laughs> that's good. Um, I, I've no doubt that they're under a lot more pressure from parents as well. I, they, they probably don't get paid enough. They have all this admin to do. I actually sympathise much more with classroom assistants who a lot of the time are doing teachers' jobs and, and getting paid an absolute pittance. But um, I don't really know what is going on, but we do seem to have professions now that are just kind of moaning all the time about what they do, whether that's, you know, the kind of doctors and GPs, surgeries or and, and the teaching profession. And I I find it hard to believe that the, the job is so much more difficult or hard work, you know, than other people's Mark, jobs. Very, very, very briefly, in just a few seconds, your thoughts? Same in problem in France. I've always thought that being a teacher is a vocation. It's a very important job. And that at the moment, as my two colleagues have said, you seem to have constant complaint and constant... Uh, uh, at the end of the day, you know, you teach uh, for the future of the nation. For the future of the nation. Well, Mark, on the email, he's not having anything. He's saying, is this April the 1st, Michelle? What are you talking about, teachers overworked? Are you having a laugh? He says mm -hmm. they've done everything possible not to work over the past two years, yet still receive their full pay and pensions. Tell them to go into the private sector and see how the world really works. You're not messing around, Mark. <laughs> uh, by the way, Sean says, all well and good, Boris Johnson wandering around uh, in Ukraine. However, he says he's losing focus here in the UK. Yeah. Be a hero for GB first. There you go. As for being a teacher, I wouldn't do it for love nor money. I don't like other people's kids enough. Would you? <laughs>